Thank you. I haven't heard that before. That was great. Good prayer of surrender. Take your Bibles and uh, turn them open to the book of Mark as we continue our series there. Book of Mark. Last Sunday we were in chapter 2. And we notice that what Mark does in chapter 2 is he presents to us four situations. And in each one of those four situations, the religious leaders of that time are challenging Jesus. And so we looked at each of those times, uh, identified what they were challenging uh, about Jesus, about what he was doing, about what he was saying. We looked at Jesus' response and what he was trying to reveal to them as far as truth about himself. When we come to chapter 3 today, we're going to find out that these religious leaders just wouldn't give up. They just kept on with their challenging. And that's what Mark is going to present in chapter 3. And... What I want you to see in chapter 3 is how when we go from chapter 2 to 3, we see the tension rising between Jesus and the religious leaders. The heat is increasing. It's getting hotter between the religious leaders and Jesus. You know, last night, uh, about 4 o'clock, I got... Our sauna started, and I off and on would be checking it. And as you know, if you have a sauna and you do this on Saturday nights or wherever, um, every time you go to check it, the heat has risen some. And the heat keeps rising. And it gets hotter and hotter in the sauna. And finally, you go into the sauna to take sauna, and it has become so hot that when you pour the water on the rocks, your earlobes start burning. And I want to suggest to you that as we come to chapter 3, we are going to see the earlobes of the religious leaders start to burn. But here's something you may not have thought about that we're going to see. As the tension rises in chapter 3, I believe the earlobes of Jesus are going to get hotter. Because I think the tension is being experienced by both parties. So let's, let's look at this. Uh, things are going to get messy, so watch out. Messy in the sense that it's going to get unpleasant. It's going to get unpleasant for everybody involved here in chapter 3 because of the tension that's rising. So, um, first of all, I need to let you know so you don't panic. I'm going to skip two parts of chapter 3. I'm going to skip this morning verses 7 through 12. 7 to 12 simply talk about how the crowds continued 
to follow Jesus. The crowds were coming from all directions, uh, south, north, east. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to hear Jesus. They wanted to be healed by Jesus. They wanted uh, friends and family to be freed from demons. Uh, the crowds continue. They come from all over. We're also going to skip verses 13 through 19. <clears throat> and here Mark basically lists for us the 12 apostles. He talks about when Jesus officially chooses 12 to be the guys that will be with him, that he will train, and that he will eventually send out to do ministry. And so that section is basically telling us who those 12 men were. We are going to look at the parts of this chapter where you see the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders and where we see tension beginning between Jesus and his family, which might surprise you. But this chapter is about tension and the tension rising. So let's, let's pray. Father, guide us now as we go into this scripture. Once again, your servant Mark is revealing Jesus to us. He's revealing Jesus to people who never heard of him. Revealing Jesus to people who know him and love him. But we just need to be reminded of what Jesus was like. So, Father, guide us. We ask that your word would prove valuable to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's start in the first six verses. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, verse 1. I hope that you have Bibles so you can follow along. It begins, another time he went into the synagogue. I don't know if you've noticed when you read the Gospels, but it's pretty clear to see that was a habit of Jesus. It must have been important to him. It seems like any time Jesus was in a town on the Sabbath, he would gather with people at the synagogue. It was important to him. That was something that he seems to continually do. And so here we have him going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Mark tells us who was there besides all the regular people. He says in verse 1, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So there's this guy at the synagogue gathering with everyone else, and he has a, a shriveled hand. You can kind of picture that. Um, it would be visible. He's probably embarrassed about it. Who knows how long it's been there, uh, how it happened, but he has this shriveled hand. Someone else is there. Verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. In verse 6, we find out these are Pharisees, religious leaders. So they're there, like they usually were, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But they're there to watch Jesus. They are going to see what he will do. 
They know there's a man there with this shriveled hand. What is Jesus going to do on the Sabbath? They want to find something to accuse Jesus of. Let me just stop here and bring this up. I know it would have been terrible having a shriveled hand, okay? That probably was a very difficult thing for this man. But it's not a physical emergency. Can we agree on that? I mean, he just had a deformed hand. Not a medical emergency. Probably had it a long time. So if that is the case, and Jesus knows that these Pharisees are there like usual, watching him to see if they can see something to accuse him of, couldn't Jesus have just decided it's not worth it? I can heal him tomorrow. This isn't a medical emergency. I can find this man tomorrow and heal his hand. And avoid what? Tension between him and the Pharisees. Does Jesus make that choice? Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Has the man stand up. And with the man standing there, verse 4, Then Jesus asked them, Who is he addressing with the question? The Pharisees. The ones who are watching closely to see what he will do. And he asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good? Or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. He just poses the question to him. Now, let me pose those questions to you children who are here, okay? Kids, here's the question. On the Lord's day, is it better to do good or to do evil? Somebody shout out the answer. Better to do good? You're right. Good answer. Second part of the question. On the Lord's Day, kids, is it better to save a life or to kill someone? To save. You're right again. You know the answer to the questions. Look how verse 4 ends after Jesus asked the question. It says, but they, these men, remained silent. Jesus had just asked them questions that were so obvious that even you boys and girls knew the answer to. Easy, right? Easy questions. And he asked them to these religious leaders, these grown men who are smart and obviously knew the answers to the questions. 
But they choose to say nothing. They just sit there. Here's where we know that Jesus' earlobes are starting to get hot. Here's where we know that Jesus also is feeling the tension. It says in verse 5, He looked around at them. In what? Anger. Jesus is angry at this point. He looks at these men whom he knows are just looking for something to accuse him of. He looks at these men who aren't even willing to answer a simple question that even children know the answer to. And they're just sitting there. And Jesus looks at them in anger. And not only anger, it's an interesting mixture here. Because it says, and deeply distressed... That's sorrow. That's grief. So right now, Jesus is feeling anger at these men. At the same time, he's feeling sorrow and grief concerning these men. Why? It says, because of their stubborn hearts. These men were so stubborn in their hearts. And it makes Jesus angry. It also makes him grieve and be sorrowful. And so what does he do? He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And so the man stretches out his shriveled hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was completely restored. He's healed. And everybody rejoices and celebrates. It's a wonderful day in the synagogue. A man has been healed. No. Look at what Mark tells us in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out. They walked out. They got up and walked out. No celebrating for those guys. They didn't care if this man had been healed. And they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What a big step. They've gone from challenging and questioning Jesus to now plotting to kill him. That's a huge step. Talk about tension rising. And it says they went and found the Herodians so that they could together plot against Jesus. The Herodians were a group made up of King Herod's extended family. They were the Jewish aristocrats. They were the upper class. And they were friends of the Romans. The Pharisees usually had nothing to do with the Herodians. But they are so upset with Jesus. They are so hot right now that they are willing to go to these people that they usually want nothing to do with and convince them to come together to plot toward Jesus' death. 
the tension is rising. It's clear. It's also clear that it's not only the tension being felt by the religious leaders, but Jesus is feeling the tension too. He gets angry. He's upset. And I think what's interesting here is Jesus, I don't want to use the word instigate. Jesus initiates what's going on here. Right? I mean, Jesus was smart. He knew those guys were there. He knew why they were there. He knew what they were up to. He knew what they were looking for that they could use against him. He knew this man's condition was not an emergency. He could have healed them the next day. But Jesus initiates what's going on. He's the one that had the man stand. He's the one that asked the questions. And he heals. He must have had a point to make. Put it this way. Jesus is getting tough. Is that okay with you to say that? At this point, Jesus is getting tough. Chapter 2, he's challenged four different times, and he just so wisely and calmly seems to embarrass them and shut them down. But the heat is rising with Jesus, too. And now he's getting tough. And he initiates what happened on this Sabbath in the synagogue. And the result is the religious leaders walk off in a huff and find the Herodians to join them in a plot to kill Jesus. Let's go to... uh, Verse 20, we move from the synagogue to a house. doesn't say whose house. Verse 20 says, Jesus entered a house, and again, as usual, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I mean, the crowds were always so big and so packed in and wanting so much from Jesus that he and his disciples couldn't even eat. Verse 22. It says, And the teachers of the law, religious leaders, who came down from Jerusalem. The big guns have arrived in Galilee. This is happening in Galilee. Jesus back and forth, has been with religious leaders up in Galilee, synagogue leaders, whatever. But now, in this section, Mark says, the big guns came up from Jerusalem. And they're among the crowd. And they're hearing Jesus. And they're watching what Jesus is doing, healing people, casting out demons. And these religious leaders... Mark says, have come to a conclusion about Jesus. So let's read this. Verse 22. 
The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. What's their conclusion about Jesus, these religious leaders? This man is possessed by the devil. The devil is in this man, and it's by the power of the devil that he's doing what he's doing. It's by the power of the devil in him that he's casting out demons. That's their conclusion. Jesus responds. I mean, this is a serious accusation, right? This is serious. To say Jesus is possessed by Satan. And what he's doing is by the power of Satan. Jesus responds in a very logical way. Because what these religious leaders are saying is not logical. So notice how Jesus presents his logical response. Verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? That's a good question. Pretty logical, isn't it? How can Satan... Drive out Satan. Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Logical. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Pretty logical, isn't it? They're saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan and that it's by the power of Satan that he's casting out demons. And Jesus just says, how could Satan cast out Satan? Why would he? doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan in his kingdom divide himself against himself? Why would Satan in his house divide himself against himself? It just doesn't make sense. The conclusion that they've come to about Jesus. And then he says this in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So what's he getting at? Well, he's saying before you can go into a strong man's house and rob him and take what's his, you have to deal with the strong man. You have to tie up the strong man. Then you can go in and steal what's his. So what's he trying to say? I think what he's saying is that the the strong man is Satan. His possessions are these people that he's controlling through demon possession. And he's saying, you can't free those people. You can't take those possessions of Satan unless you are stronger than Satan. 
I think he's suggesting, which is true, that he is stronger than Satan, that he is not possessed by Satan. He is not working by the power of Satan. He is working against Satan, and he is freeing people from Satan's control, and he's able to do it because he is stronger than the strong man. He is stronger than Satan. And then Jesus gets tough again. And he gives these men a very, very strong warning. Let's see the warning. Verse 28. He says, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Whoa. He brings up the sin that he says can never be forgiven. All other sins can be forgiven. But he says there's one sin that cannot be forgiven. And what is it? He calls it blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Jesus tells them. Verse 30. Mark gives us this information. He says, Jesus said this because they, who? these religious leaders from Jerusalem, because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So what is this blasphemy of the spirit Jesus is talking about? Well, from the text, it's clear. It's what these guys had just done. Jesus had been, as the stronger party, been casting out demons and freeing people from Satan's control. And these men concluded that he was doing that by the power of the devil. And because he was actually doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were calling the Holy Spirit demonic, and thus blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the actual power by which Jesus was casting out demons. And Jesus says, and it is severe, severe warning to these guys. He says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Calling what is done by the power of the Spirit demonic will not be forgiven. It's the unforgivable sin. And that leads to all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Which we're not going to delve into. Because Mark doesn't. But, let me just say this much. 
When believers see this passage and read about this and see this severe warning and this idea of blasphemy against the Spirit, and it's a sin that can't be forgiven, it's very common for believers to start thinking, could I commit that sin? Wow, there's a sin that can never be forgiven. Is it possible for me to commit that sin? And I would say the answer is no. A believer cannot commit that sin. You remember our responsive reading? Believers are forgiven. Totally. No condemnation. Right? Believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is not a sin that believers can commit. Well, then, the next question we ask if we accept that answer that I just gave, is, well, can unbelievers commit this sin that he's talking about that can never be forgiven? And again, I'll suggest to you, and you'll have to go check it out, I think the answer is no. An unbeliever cannot commit the sin Jesus is talking about. Now, unbelievers, if they go their whole life right to the end, rejecting Jesus and rejecting his salvation, they will go into eternity apart from God forever in judgment. But that's not the sin Jesus is talking about. Jesus tells us what sin he's talking about, right? He says it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Mark says... He said it because those men had just attributed to the devil what the Holy Spirit had done. Here's a thought for you, and then we'll go on. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not mentioned again from Acts and on. After Jesus leaves. I would suggest the reason is. That is a sin that had to be committed when Jesus was here in person. And when people saw him with their own eyes. Cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And still attributed that to the devil. I want you to think about that and stop worrying about the unforgivable sin. Jesus is warning a group of men who are teetering on the edge of that unforgivable sin. And he gives them this warning. So, I mean, obviously the tension is rising. I mean, is that pretty clear? Uh, Mark is really showing us that from chapter 2 to chapter 3, as time moves on, it's getting hotter and hotter between Jesus and the religious leaders. It just is. The tension is rising. To the point now where, where Jesus initiates things, and to the point where they're plotting to kill him, to the point where Jesus is willing to just get tough and say, you are committing a sin that is unforgivable. 
But hey, it's not just the religious leaders. Did you notice a little verse squeezed in right before the section about the leaders from Jerusalem? Verse uh, 21. Right before this give and take between those leaders and Jesus. Verse 21 says, when his family heard about this, when they heard about all that was going on, things Jesus was doing, all the opposition, the, you know, everything, when they heard what was going on, they went to take charge of him. Jesus' family. Chapter 6, verse 3, if you just flip over there, you find out who his family was. Mary, his mother, four brothers, they're named in Mark 6, 3, and sisters. And so Mark says, at this point, his family is hearing what's going on, and they now come to take charge of him. And to take charge, it comes from the Greek word for arrest, to forcibly take into custody. So they're coming to arrest him. They aren't law enforcement. They're his family. But based on what they're hearing, they have come to find him and take him forcibly. Sounds like they want to take him back home to Nazareth. Get him away from there. And so they're making their way to this place where Jesus is. Then you have the give and take with the religious leaders. And Mark comes back to Jesus' family in verse 31. So take a look at this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Remember, the house is packed with people. Outside the house, packed with people. Jesus' family comes. They can't get in. So they have somebody go talk to Jesus. Verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Your family's here. And Jesus begins to say some really shocking things. First he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, there in the house. And he said, and I can just see him pointing. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That would be shocking. In the Jewish culture, family is crucial. The Jewish culture, family is everything. And Jesus' family comes. And his response is, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? And he points to all these people. And he says, this is my family. Anyone who does the will of God. Anyone who has that in common with me is my family. That would have been a shock to people sitting there to hear that from Jesus. That would have been a shock to his family when someone went out and told them what he said. 
Now, is he saying I, I want nothing to do with my family, my biological family? No. I think he's saying a couple things. I think, first of all, he's saying on this day at this time, This is my family. Plus, he knew why they were coming, right? He's Jesus. He he knew why they were coming. The second thing he's doing, I would suggest, is he is revealing a truth here. And that is that there's another family. That he has come to make another family. There's a new family. And it's made up of Jesus and anyone else who desires to do the will of God. It's a spiritual family. But I would guess that when word came out to the family about Jesus' response, there probably was some tension that rose within the family members. Mary's wondering why in the world does he not want to see us. And the brothers, they probably haven't been believing anything he has been saying anyway. And they're just, you know, maybe even anger. What's their problem? You know, we, we can see the problem of of the religious leaders, I mean, they were jealous of Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their power and authority, uh, their leadership. Uh, they may have seen Jesus as another false teacher, a fraud, claiming to be the Messiah, and they were just protecting their people as spiritual leaders from another false teacher. They were feeling competitive. We can see how... All that tension would be rising. He was embarrassing them in public. He was humiliating them with the way that he would respond to them. But the family, what's their problem? Well, you notice in verse 22 there, or verse 21, they come to forcibly take him because they think he's out of his mind. His family thinks he's out of his mind. They're hearing what he's doing. I don't know. Do they think he's too radical? That he's become some kind of rebel? Uh, Are they concerned about his safety? They're hearing about the opposition. They want to protect him. Are they concerned about his health? He's not eating. He's sleeping outside. He's homeless. Um, Do they think his claims to be the Messiah are crazy? Whatever it is, they have a problem, and they want to get him out of there and bring him home. And so there must be tension here. As Jesus says, nope, right now, there's another family. It's all these people. Anyone who does the Father's will, they're my family, and they need me right now. And so the tension must have been growing. And as Mark goes on, we'll see uh, Mark coming back to the family and see the tension again. So chapter 3, tension. That's, that's what Mark is presenting to us. He, he wants us to realistically see 
that these were tough times. The tension kept rising between Jesus and these religious leaders, and you can see it beginning to start between Jesus and his own family. To wrap it up, let me ask you this. These days, is there any tension between you and Jesus? Are you experiencing tension between you and Jesus? Maybe you're an unbeliever. You've never trusted Christ for salvation, but people keep sharing the gospel with you and you keep hearing it and people keep encouraging you to to consider uh, giving your life to Jesus and you keep resisting it. And every time you hear the gospel, the tension just increases. Is there tension between you and Jesus because for some reason you don't want to give in to him? You don't want to give up control of your life? You don't want to surrender to him? My fellow Christians, is there tension these days between you and Jesus? Are you involved in some kind of disobedience? You know it's wrong. And it's created this tension between you and Jesus. The relationship isn't what it should be. Maybe you know what God's will is. You know what Jesus wants you to do. But you're refusing. And there's tension between you and Jesus and what he wants. Maybe there are things Jesus says written in Scripture, and when you read them, you understand it, but it's like, I couldn't do that. Forgive? Love my enemies? On and on. Maybe, Maybe there's tension between you and Jesus because of things he says and teaches. Maybe there's tension between you and Jesus because he's not cooperating with you. You've been praying and praying, and nothing's happening. You want Jesus to do something you know he can do. He's done it for others, but it's not happening. And it's causing this tension between you and Jesus in your relationship. Maybe it even bothers you what he said about family. Those of you who think family is everything. And family has become more important to God. And the family has become God. And when you hear Jesus say something like Mark records, you feel this tension because of what it sounds like Jesus is saying. Is there tension between you and Jesus? You know how that tension can be relieved? Surrender. Because if there's tension between you and Jesus, that is not a battle you're going to win. This tension between Jesus and religious leaders, they're never going to win it, right? They won't. We've read the story. It's a battle they're not going to win. The tension that begins between Jesus and his family, they're not going to win. The brothers are going to end up surrendering to him. And whatever tension there is right now, these days between you and Jesus... That's a battle you're not going to win. The tension will be relieved when you surrender. And you have what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 11, a pure and simple devotion to Christ. 
and the tension just goes down. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we not only see all the really exciting, positive things as you reveal Jesus to us, but we also see the reality of the difficulty, the reality of the tension, the reality of the opposition, the reality of Jesus getting tough, the reality of Jesus even getting angry, the reality of Jesus giving warnings. Thank you, Father, that even when we experience tension with Jesus, he will always come out on top. We may as well surrender. And I pray that if someone here is experiencing tension with Jesus, Lord, bring them to that place of surrender, whatever it is, surrender. So that the tension can just subside and they can enjoy a simple, pure devotion to their Lord and Savior, Jesus. In his name, amen.